inspiring you to reach your goals and live your dream. And live your dream. This is the Keaton Nelson Show. Alrighty, guys. Welcome to the Keaton Nelson Show. Today, I have a very special guest for you. Um, she's a good friend of mine, and she is absolutely crushing it with uh, her coaching business. And um, she she's got quite um, a history and a lot of awesome experiences that I'm so excited for her to share on the podcast. And I think she's got a podcast of her own that is either launched or launching. And um, We'll get to chat about that too. Cameron, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Keaton. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. We did, we did the um, Brittany Droz coaching program together at Entrepreneurs Club, uh, which was awesome. And we got to, you know, start our relationship there. But I'm like, um, I'm interested for the viewers to kind of get to know you. And mm-hmm. like, where are you originally from? I was born in Seattle, Washington, and yep. grew up in Marysville, Washington, which is was a small town uh, about 50 minutes north of Seattle. Mm-hmm. And what was it like growing up? Were your parents rich, poor? You, like, how'd you grow up? What was, did you go to public school, private school, homeschool? What was your, your life like growing up? Oh, goodness. Well, so my parents divorced when I was two. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I was, and they were already, I think they'd already been separated for a while. So I grew up with a single mom um, and went to see my dad every other weekend and um, my mom worked really hard. I was a latchkey kid. You know, you go, um, go to school, you come home, you let yourself in. And I remember like eating like a can of fro- like canned frosting out of the fridge and watching Dukes of Hazard and MTV because I had just come out. Yep. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, we were, I would say, middle class. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, it was, and I went to public school uh, all the way. Um, through until college. Um, and I loved it. I actually had the opportunity to go to a private school because my dad was building um, different wings and was on the board of a, um, uh, a, a private school in Ojai, California. And at the time, I didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to understand the educational impacts of that. And I was just like, no way, I'm not leaving my friends and boyfriend and and mm-hmm. stayed in public school. And I, I had, I had a great time. Nice. Yeah. I, I love public school. And I was like a latchkey kid too, from like pretty young age. I'd, you know, take the bus, get home at three. Yep. And I remember like kicking my, my shoes off at the couch and, and back grabbing a bag of chips or like frosting or eating leftover <laughs> birthday cake or whatever. And just watching TV until, you know, five o'clock. And then my mom would come through the door and she'd be really mad that I didn't take the chicken out from to defrost, oh. you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, so where did you go to college? What did you go to school for? So I started out at the University of Washington. Um, that was where my father went and my grandfather went and my aunt went and some cousins. And it was I just kind of went there. Um, which, and it's a fantastic school, but it wasn't the great, it wasn't a great school for me. It was just too big at the time I was going in my, I was studying, um, international politics and Japanese and really the art of drinking. 
Yeah. Um, it was a disaster <laughs> of a freshman year. Um, I dropped out about three quarters of the way through, um, destroyed some friendships along the way. I mean, it was, it was not great. And uh, then my parents who were paying for college at the time said that, um, you know, that was done, that I would need to um, pay my, if I wanted to go to college, I would need to pay my way. And so I, I worked at an espresso stand and paid my way through community college to get an AA degree. And then after I had proven that I was serious about being a student and got my shit together, so to speak, um, I started looking at four-year schools again. And, um, and I was lucky enough to get some scholarship and also the help from my mom and dad. Um, I don't exactly know how that worked. If they like pooled sources, if it was just all dad or yeah, some yeah, mom, yeah. I don't really know, but I was really lucky in the sense that they helped with that. And I um, graduated uh, from Gonzaga university, which is a small Jesuit private school in Spokane, Washington. And I loved it. It was so much better for me. So instead of being in a place with, you know, where I think my, one of my classes at UW had like a thousand people in it. Yeah. Whereas the small school had like, you know, I had classes with 25 and that was also where I really departed from the international politics idea and went um, into communications and advertising and marketing. I really found that really just kind of listening to my heart is like all the classes that were required for that were the things that I loved. So Mm -hmm. I have a degree in public relations uh, and marketing and advertising. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't even know that. So it's never been used. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what did you, did you go right into fashion out of college? No, no. What did you do out of college? I, uh, I went backpacking for a year. Nice. Where? uh, With, uh, I went to Fiji and (laughs) New Zealand and Australia, uh, with my childhood friend, Shalyn Flavelle, and she was celebrating her five year cancer free, um, birthday and i was celebrating i made it like mostly sober through college and graduated uh, (laughs) celebration and uh, so we backpacked for a year um and i was i remember writing to my mom like mom like you can travel like we can we stay in places for like five dollars a night and now as a mom and as an adult, it's like, oh my God, I would never stay in some of the places that we stayed. Some of the youth hostels were great, um, mm-hmm. but some of them were, um, you know, pretty sketchy. And it was, and on that trip though, I had this premonition that I wasn't going home and it hit me really strongly. And it, it, it I like felt it physically and really, I was really sad about it. I'm like, but I think I want to go home. And it was just like, I just knew I wasn't going home and I, I ended up returning from the trip, working for three months, doing odd jobs, trying to save up money for an apartment first and last month's rent. And I had this unique opportunity to move to China and I, it was, uh, you know, just this kind of strange, um, I don't know crashing of events together. I'd always wanted to live in a culture that where I knew nothing, where I had to be totally immersed and learn everything. 
I just didn't know it would be China. I didn't know it. And I did not know it would be in a factory. Um, and I worked for a Taiwanese factory called Shieda, and they made Adidas sneakers. And I was hired to do public relations. Actually, I said I never used PR. I was actually hired to do public relations for them mm-hmm. because they were an Eastern company struggling with the relationship with their Western buyer. And they asked if I could help with this. And I <laughs> maybe, <laughs> give it a shot, sure. I don't know. And um, I got, so I moved to China, uh, not knowing a word of Chinese, not, I mean, and this was in 1997. And um, it was much, it was a much different place in Southern China then than it is now. I mean, now there's Starbucks and it's, it's much more westernized back back then i was the only you know anglo person for miles people would stop their cars if i was walking down the road and look at me <laughs> um it's crazy but it 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 turned out to be a obviously a put my life on a trajectory that i hadn't expected and so you did pr for this company did you do a good job with pr well, mm-hmm. it was kind of. <laughs> I mean, what do you expect from a, to, like a someone fresh out of college, never done this before, and they're going to China to do PR? <laughs> right. Crazy. I mean, yeah, yeah. it was honestly, it was more of glorified secretarial work. I checked yeah. faxes back then. I checked mm-hmm. um, for you know proper English. I checked presentations, um, and it was it was clear that I could do more than what they what they were asking me to do. And they, they asked me to run their business office. I don't, I couldn't read Chinese or speak it at that point. So I'm like, I don't know <laughs> if I can do that. Like that was maybe a bit of a stretch. And they said, well, you know, see if you, you know, do you know how to do costing? You know, can you figure this out? And I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And, um, but what, it, but I learned it from literally from the factory floor up about, figuring out how much it costs to produce one shoe, you know, so how long does it take? What goes into it? How is the line set up? How much rubber is in there? How much does rubber cost? How much is a, um, an embroidery, all of that kind of stuff. And that gave me the opportunity to start having these negotiations with Adidas. So I was working for the factory, but Adidas was our buyer and it was that bridge that really helped launch my career because the understanding of the communication really is really what helped propel me. Certainly not because I'm a math wizard because, you know, my husband jokes all the time. He used to joke. Now I don't do it at all, but my job is totally different, but used to joke like, like you're in charge of $1.2 billion worth of goods. And like, we can't <laughs> figure out the tip. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I can probably get us a good deal. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, and I've always said that I was, I was successful in the costing world because of the fact that I understood how to communicate with people and I put the effort into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And just out of curiosity, how, like, how did the the China job come up in the first place? Was it while you were traveling? Was it like how did you apply for this job? How did you like? I, did, I don't even understand how an opportunity like that falls on your plate. You know, um, and it's it, it was a complete. Um, 
I don't know, one of those things that just happens because when I was home after after backpacking and I was completely broke and I was working all these odd jobs trying to save up first and last month's rent, I was living at my dad's house on Orcas Island, Washington. And his friend was a writer for National Geographic. And he was doing a story on a, the tidal bore on, I believe, the Yellow River. And nobody went, nobody that we knew went to China back then. I mean, China wasn't open. I mean, and this was probably 1996 because I moved in 97. So Hong Kong still belonged to the UK. I mean, it was, it was different. Oh, wow. And so, um, and my, I'm so sorry. We are the only people with a real phone. Oh, the house phone. That's all a right. Landline. Do you hear, want you me to go turn that off? It doesn't bother me. Yeah. I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Hopefully Eric will turn it off. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I'm sorry. I completely lost my, lost my train of thought with that phone thing. Um, uh, uh, 97 oh, the, Hong the, Kong. The writer. Yeah, yeah. And the, yes, exactly. So my dad asked his friend, he's just like, you know, my dad has always been very much about seeing the world and seeing other cultures and understanding how things interrelate um, and not just being U.S. centric. And he asked his friend, he's like, hey, if I pay my way, can I just like tag along on this National Geographic trip? And the friend was like, yeah, that's fine with me. Well, the friend's mother died the day before or the week before the trip was taking place. Mm -hmm. And my dad asked me, he's like, why don't you go on this China trip with me? He's like, it's all set up. We're going to go. And he's like, I'm going to film this thing for my friend now because the friend couldn't go. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't afford to do this. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, if I, if I pay for my airfare, like I will have no money. I mean, you know, back mm -hmm. then a thousand bucks was a lot of money. And, um, and he's like, well, if you pay for your airfare, I'll pay for your uh, room and board. So I ended up in China with my dad and his we somehow or another, his great friend, Carl came along and Carl um, is a total character and about, he was, he has passed since then, but he was about six, six. Um, and the Chinese called him Da Bidzu, which is big nose because he <laughs> did quite a big nose. Um, but anyway, on this, um, on this trip, we, we go, we film the title bore. It's amazing. I'm in love with being in, this land where I know nothing, everything is foreign. Everything to me is new. And I just adored it. And then we also, my dad had organized a boat trip down the Yangtze river. And this was before they built the largest dam in the world and flooded the whole thing. So you used to be able to take a boat ride through the three gorges. And my dad's like pretty rough and tumble. So I was prepared for like, you know, uh, I don't know, like a junk boat, not even a junk boat, but like a, uh, I mean, a, I was, I didn't know if we'd be rowing down this. Thing. Yeah, well, yeah. It turned out to be like, kind of like the love boat in my mind. <laughs> I've never been on yeah. a cruise, you know, where you sit with people you don't know and you chat and talk and there are talks going on. And on that trip, there was another family traveling and it was this Taiwanese family who were, they were having a uh, family reunion some from Taiwan, some from Seattle, some from San Francisco, some from Vancouver, uh, Canada. 
And in com- and I just, I don't know, struck up a conversation. They asked me what I was doing out in the middle of China. And right. They asked me what I did. And I'm like, I don't do anything. <laughs> but I plan to get a job in advertising and or public relations. And they started talking about um, one of them was the general manager of a factory and started talking about this relationship and his the relationship issues of and communication issues of the Eastern and the Western. And his brother's like, Oh, you should hire her to come do PR for you. <laughs> and, uh, and it turned into a job offer. And uh, three months later, I moved to China. Yeah. That's just wild. And <laughs> no, 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 I love, this is what I love is like, um, I feel like a lot of people just out of college are completely lost. Um, and it's normal, like completely normal, but like, it's like just the most random things that end up launching people's careers or their businesses or things like that. And that like, you couldn't have ever planned or you couldn't have ever like been like, Oh, I'm going to go eventually by the time I'm 30, I'm going to be an executive coach or whatever you were doing at at that time. You know what I mean? But you're like, no, I'm going to go to China. And then that like got you a secretary type work job at a factory. Then they need help doing costing. Then you end up negotiating with Adidas, which did that end up leading to you working for Adidas? Yeah. After a year, they contacted me and they said, you know, we've started footwear production in Vietnam and our it's production's growing every month. Every month is our biggest month we've ever had. Our country, mm-hmm. it, it, we're trying to put up a put together an office and a source base. Our country manager is going nuts. Your name, you know, he's doing all the costing. Your name has come up. Would you be interested? And I'd already told the factory that I'd stay another year, um, mm-hmm. but I just thought when that opportunity came up, I just thought, oh, I'm not going to work in a factory forever. And and then I went and I visited Vietnam. And I was just like, oh, my God, they're going to pay me to live here. Because at that time, this was 98, something like that, 99. um, The trade relations between the U.S. and Vietnam had not yet opened. And so or normalized. Sorry. And so it was still like everybody still rode motorbikes. Um, It was it was not as. industrialized as Southern China and Southern China at that time, it was, there was so much smog from all the factories in 97 Mm -hmm. in Southern China, you could hardly see across the road. And I get to Vietnam and it's just like sunny and everybody's happy. And it's this vibrant place where everybody is hoping for the normalization of the trade relations. So they are expecting that it's happening and there's a lot of investment coming in. Um, and it was just like, you know, and I had this really tough interview with the country manager um, who became a fantastic mentor. His name was David Sulk. And he was just like, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And I'm like, can you teach me? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, then yeah, no problem. And he was a great teacher and mentor and really helped me learn at a really great impressionable age, when I was 27-ish or something like that, mm-hmm. about also too about negotiation and not screwing people, about um, looking for win-win, about keeping your word, about being, you know, having integrity. And 
And he built a huge thriving business for Adidas there. And I got to, I mean, I worked like a dog. I mean, we, it was before the standards of engagement that most factories employed now. I mean, there's, there are beautiful factories in all over Asia now. Mm-hmm. I was there, um, you know, we worked six or seven days a week in the office you know, and there were, you know, days, you know, 15 hour days, there was, you know, I remember going five weeks without a day off, I went to work with some kind of Asian version of the mumps, I worked with worms, uh, which I really don't recommend, it's gross. Um, We just worked. Um, But at the time, I mean, at least I was young enough (laughs) to to do it. And it was Mm -hmm. an incredible education in itself. It's cool. Yeah. And, um, and as you said, you asked, I'm sorry, you asked if that got me into Adidas and it did. And I know no, I was, that's where I was going to lead to anyway. So I'm glad you yeah. went into it. That's really cool. Yeah. I'm just, it's interesting to find like how you understand where, how you got to where you are now is it's like, I always like to dig into that in the podcast if I can. It's very interesting. Um, and then you ended up working at coach. Was that next or was there anything else in between there? There was a, a there was a step in between or a couple of steps in between where I noticed when I was in Vietnam that we would have teams um, from the U.S. and from Germany come in. They were like designers, um, marketing developers, and they'd come and they'd work on their footwear lines. Mm-hmm. And I would help with their costing, and they would do lots of sample rounds. This was back when people traveled. For yeah, didn't you say there was some shady stuff going on back then too? Oh my god! Like, yeah, and like- that was one thing that our country manager was totally against. Like. It, because I was costing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be so easy for a factory manager to come in with an envelope, $40,000 in cash and just say, look, if you could just, you know, overlook like a nickel, mm-hmm. you know, on this next 300,000 pair order, right? And you had to be, and that stuff happened. And we were I mean, we were not allowed to accept us anything, no gifts, not. nothing yeah, yeah. like, not, you know, and whereas in other countries and other and other brands, I mean, some of that was normal. It was just like, yeah, I mean, like the factory paid for everything. Like they paid for your golf membership. They paid for, you know, whatever gifts, paid for your wedding, paid for whatever. And we were just not that. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. there was some shady stuff, but, and it seemed like, <laughs> it seemed at the time like I, I mean I had a kind of a sour take on men at the time because it seemed like they'd go to Asia and like all bets were off and just mm-hmm. you know karaoke bars, prostitutes, yeah, lots of lots of craziness. Um, and I was just like, oh God, I'm never marrying anybody in the industry now that I know <laughs> that they come out here and do this. And I did marry mm-hmm. somebody in the industry, but. I trust him that he has never done anything untold. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, when these design teams would come out, they do this work on their product line and they leave and everything's happy. They like got, hit their margin targets. They love their shoe. And then they would go back and they would continue to change and change and change and send over changes to Asia. And we would work like dogs to prepare the new samples and prepare the new costs and then they'd be upset and not understand why their prices went up and they their delivery time slid. And I was just like, somebody in the headquarters needs to help these people understand the cost of their decisions, the impact of mm. their decisions on the supply chain. Um, and there wasn't, there was like one costing person in Germany at the time 
and one costing person in the US at the time for Adidas. And I just raised my hand. I'm like, I, I think that more of these people, you know, and it wasn't their fault. Like, how would they know that, you know, if you're 22 years old and are told, make the coolest thing to kick Nike off the shelf, like, you know, you don't necessarily know that, you know, doing some kind of crazy dip on a piece of plastic is going to, you know, take your price up to 50. And, um, and it was right at the same time. It was fortuitous because of the fact that um, the CEO at the time had also just put out a statement about looking at really looking at the cost of goods in the company, because that's something you can really see and you can um, dial down or you used to be able to now it's much, much harder. Um, but you can see it on the balance sheet. And so when I raised my hand and this thing was also coming, it was, you know, it allowed me to, I moved to Germany. I, I built a team. Um, I, co I put the, my costing team members in with the other teams to help them like be right there, have the conversation right, right on hand. And again, this is common practice now, but at the time it was, it was new, you know, yeah. to really like be there, be a partner, let people know uh, what the cost was. And so I did that. And then I eventually was the head of costing for Adidas, Solomon and TaylorMade for footwear. And that was like, that was like, that was like, okay, that was my goal. Like I wanted to be the head of, you know, global costing. And um, I got there and then um, Adidas bought Reebok and I was part of the integration team. And I kind of felt like, you know, I have done, like I've reached where I need to go with this. And I'd been at Adidas for 10 years and decided I really need something. I think I need to see a perspective of another company just to, you know, round myself out. And at the same time, I was lucky that coach happened to be coach, the handbag company in New York happened to be um, recruiting and a recruiter reached out to me um, and said, you know, how would you like to, you know, we had the conversations. I, you know, obvious I, my, I was married um, and we both thought, well, New York will be, that'd be fun for a while. And, uh, moved to New York and worked for Coach Handbag Company from 2008 to 2010. Mm -hmm. um, Were you in the city? In the, right in the city. We lived, oh, we nice. bought an apartment in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, wow. Right before the stock market crashed. So we proved to people that you can actually lose money on real estate in New York, which was <laughs> heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, but it was, oh, man. 2008 it was a great, to 2010. Yeah, it was wow. a great time. I mean, in terms of, Mm -hmm. everything happens in new york that's over yeah. by that's right near times square isn't it yes yeah right next like to two square. blocks over but our we yeah. were on um 44th and 10th on the west side and no i stayed at that old hotel there when i went i can't remember the name of it right now huh. mm -hmm. so it's right there it's like right across the street from those pension mm. Uh, I can't think of it off the top okay. of my head, no but anyway, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we were on West 44th and 10th and, um, mm -hmm. it was a two block walk to the Sounds coach, good. the, uh, the coach offices. And mm -hmm. we, we tried to go to as many plays as we could manage to mm -hmm. go to on and off Broadway. And it was, it was amazing. It was, it was fantastic for a period of time, but it, because it was, the crash uh my husband was really having a hard time finding a job and he's in, in marketing so we figured going to new york it'd be totally 
totally fine. Um, And it wasn't. And after three Mm -hmm. years, you know, he was doing some gig work and he was just so miserable. And um, we both, I went on a business trip. We both got offered jobs at the same time. Um, And so I got offered a job with coach in India um, to run the office there, which I love India. And what I thought, oh, this is, this is awesome. I really, really want to do this. But I'm like, how can I drag this poor man? <laughs> I, I, here we go and lose a big chunk of money on real estate. He's been totally, you know, living in this misery of not having a job where he's, he's, a, he's a corporate guy. He really didn't like that. I'm like, I moved him to Chennai. I mean, God, that just didn't seem fair. And at the same time in the Singapore airport on the way home from that trip, I had a funny feeling and I took a pregnancy test in the airport and found out that we were pregnant. Wow. And and so then it made much more. I just told him, open up your search. We don't need to stay in New York. Just like find a job that you love. I'm flexible. It'll work out. And so we ended up in Rhode Island because of Hasbro Toy Company. That's cool. I didn't know that. And (laughs) um, was that when you finish up with coach or like, or when did you, were you still working for them and while you're in Rhode Island at all? No, I left no. and I um, had the immense luxury of taking three years off wow. uh, when Lily was a baby. And nice. um, I really didn't know. I'm like, what if I, what if I hate not working? Like I'd been a workaholic, like my whole adult life. And then, I, but I also had this fear, like, what if I love it and never want to go back? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but I always planned on going back to work. I wanted to be a role model for her that where, I mean, obviously she's the center of our world, but I also wanted her, her to grow up knowing that mom also has other stuff that's important to her. Right. Um, and so after three years, I went to work for Brahman Handbag Company, which is, um, it was a family owned company in um in Massachusetts. And it was like, they happened to be in my backyard and a coach person with international experience happened to be in their backyard. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like a great fit. And I was there for four and a half years. Um, and it wasn't a great fit. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to go into that too much, but like you, when you were working, you were higher up in these companies from what I understand, right. You were like right up there, like executive heading up global teams and stuff like that. And yes, never, yeah. I was never in the C-suite, um, no. but I definitely had, I mean, you know, at one point in, at Adidas, I didn't have a huge team, but I had 33 people, but they were in like seven different countries. Wow. Um, so yeah. And you were working like crazy, crazy hours. Yes. Stuff. Yeah. Like the whole time. You get three years off. And then is that when you started coaching or did you use the Brahmin handbags? You wasn't a good fit. Then I'm guessing you decided you wanted to go and help other women who are executives that are working like crazy, not getting respected the way they should and how teaching them to have those conversations and communicate and things like that. I'm just putting stuff out there. Maybe you can <laughs> explain better what you're, you're doing right now and who you help and how you help them. Yes. I mean, it's true. I, you know, so the, the situation um, there, it taught me a lot. I have, you know, a different person. I mean, 
time and perspective is very helpful. Um, I can now see that, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I mean, I had, you know, I had skin in the game too, in, in terms of the relationship not working, but I did end up in this state where I had been, my self-esteem had been completely shredded. I mean, just completely shredded where I felt like, and I was at this point where I was like, I was forgetting things. I was, I was on guard so much that I, I would, and I was, uh, I, I was constantly on guard to be attacked, you know, or humiliated in front of other people. And can you explain really, the, like what was going What do you mean? What was going on? So, um, you know, I had, I have a lot of strong opinions about how operations and international operations work. Um, mm-hmm. And having done that my whole life and I was, um, it, unfortunately in my perspective, it was, a. I don't know that they necessarily wanted an outside view, but again, I can't, I can't speak for them. I just know that at the time the CEO would be, you know, we'd be in meetings and she'd, you know, I had a huge area. I was running all of operations and yeah. I loved it. I mean, I was just like, oh my God, I was born for this. I was born for operations. I loved the strategy. I loved the relationships with the tanneries and the factories and the, um, I, my God, I went and learned how to tan leather myself. Um, I, uh, I was working with purchasing. I had, I think I had purchasing, costing the lab quality, um, development. Mm -hmm. So leather development, material development, packaging development, um, everything (laughs) in the U S and, and the factories in Asia. And I was like, I just love this. Um, but it was a lot is a lot of pieces that were moving all the time. And it felt to me like I had somehow fallen out of favor and and, you know, in retrospect, maybe it was because I felt, I mean, like what I tell people now when I coach them is like, make sure you're in lockstep with whomever you report to. Like, make sure if it feels important to you, make sure it's important to them. You know, I mean, like, mm-hmm. I felt like something was super important and I chased after it really, really hard because in my mind, it was making an improvement. Uh huh. In retrospect, I should have, like, do you care about this as much as I do? <laughs> That's um, a good point. That's a very and you know, and so yeah. it's really you know making that effort, even when it's uncomfortable, to say like, "Hey, we haven't checked in for a while. I haven't gotten any feedback for a while," mm-hmm. and I would start getting, you know, I would start getting, you know, and it was it was a bummer because I kept thinking this is a female-run company, it was a female CEO. I'm like, this should be awesome. The the directors, we were almost all female. Um, the founder was a couple, but the founding designer was a woman. I'm like, this should be a great place for women to work. And I, I felt very protective of the other women there. Um, and, but I would just be, it felt like picked on and called out, you know, and asked, you know, details about certain things in meetings, which I just couldn't remember every detail, you know, um, when you're running all that. Yeah. I, I just couldn't. And, you know, and then I, you know, she'd visibly roll her eyes at, at when I didn't know. And she'd look at, she'd look at, you know, um, the people that, were in favor, you know, and roll her eyes and kind of laugh. And it was, 
absolutely killing me and just absolutely killing me. And so, and I wanted a coach. I asked, I said, you know, um, would you guys support me having a coach? Because this isn't like, this isn't working. Like I can't do anything right. And they laughed at me and said that they would only support that for the greenest of managers. And so then I felt even worse. And I'm like, trying to look wow. for a coach on my own. And I'm like, somebody needs, I like, I'm, I'm like in the trash can here. Like, how do I get out of this? Yeah. And I was trying to figure out how do you find a coach? And I'm like, do you have to, like, if you don't have a company that's going to pay for it, like, do they exist? And now that I am one, I know that we're everywhere. Yeah. Um, but it made me, you know, eventually, and it was my husband who said, you know, you have to pick a day and it has to be your last there because mm-hmm. we don't recognize you anymore. Yeah. And so I quit. And then I took six months. No, I took nine months to really rebuild. Mm-hmm. Um, and I live right by Brown University. And I used to look at their continuing ed programs just to see, you know, just to see if anything piqued my interest. And I had considered coaching for a while because of the fact that I mean, not during the Brahmin times, but in previous times of like having these international leadership positions and having worked with other cultures and you know, having this breadth of this knowledge base. And I'm like, you know, this could maybe this would be something. And I'd be like, oh, well, I'll do that you know, in my 50s. And I wasn't quite 50 then, but I was looking at Brown and they had added a coaching accreditation program. And I just thought maybe this is the time. Maybe don't wait. And um, and so I um, took the accreditation. I loved it from the beginning. I never in my life thought I wanted to own my own business, and here I am because I realized that I didn't want to have. Um, I really wanted my fingerprints all over it. Like I wanted to be able to do it in my own way. And I wanted to be accessible. I wanted to be, um, you know, it's like I I wanted to be able to utilize my operational background. I mean, like I am results driven, um, you know, and coaching, like really like raw, straightforward coaching from a coactive coaching method is, and, and I have to remind myself this, the coach is not meant to be the one that comes up with the solutions. Mm. Um, but I think that where I help my clients the most is help them get to the, the, what will help them feel like they're moving forward. Because for me, it's very important. And I have a lot of tools around that of moving people forward. Um, so I, I draw on my operational background, but then, you know, and, and utilize it while helping them discover you know, what is really important to them. And as you alluded to, I want to help, I want to help other women who are, you know, that they are likely executives, they're likely mothers, but not necessarily. But when you are (laughs) a working mom, um, and my friends all told me this before I went back to work, like, you're going to feel like you suck at work and you suck at home. And that was exactly how I felt. And I, and, and, it was like playing out. It was like, and, uh, and now I, you know, I want to help people realize, you know, help women realize that there are options that there are, you know, that it's okay to take a breath and really reacquaint yourself with yourself. 
um, you know, and that you're worth it. <laughs> you know, it's like, had I, had I redone the four years at Brahm and I would, as soon as I smelled something a little bit funky because it was way earlier on, I wish I'd had the guts to say, I think this is really strange and I think we should talk about it. And I didn't because I didn't feel like, well, that I did another job. I'm like, you know, I, I'm this fashion person in Rhode Island. <laughs> it's like, there's not a whole ton of, you know, if I was willing to move back to New York, it might've been different. Um, but what I realize now is that that sacrifice to myself and not being true to myself really cost me. And so, you know, now I, I really help. I mean, I, I, I'd say my superpower is helping people realize um, their greatness. That's great. Um, so we're slowly running out of time, but I have some questions that I ask all of my guests uh, mm -hmm. on here. And one of the questions I'd love for you to answer is if you have just one book that you believe that everyone should read, like it should be like curriculum in school or whatever, just everyone should read this one book. What would that one book be? Um, okay. Can I say three? <laughs> I mean, uh, the, you got to pick one first and then I'll let you sneak in the other two. Okay. So the, the first one that comes to mind, honestly, is going to sound a little woo woo, but it's the secret. Oh, cool. And yeah. And I, I just, I've listened, I've listened to it. I haven't actually read it, but I've listened to mm -hmm. it a million times. And I just think that the, the opportunity to see things in a different light in a positive light mm -hmm. is illuminated in that book in a way that I just think is really useful. And I think that, I think everybody should read it. I think that when you're young, you should read it, you know, and to, to just know that, what you do and what you put out there has a ripple effect and there are repercussions, you know, that, so yeah. So it's a little, woo -woo. Yeah. I got to, um, uh, I got to introduce you to someone who he runs a, a program. Um, it's one of Bob Proctor's program. program. Bob Proctor. Oh, oh okay. yeah. Okay. He's in the book. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, so I'm going through the program right now. It's called thinking into results and it's, oh my God, it's an Keaton, awesome, that's so six, cool. yeah, it's a six month program. I think you'd love it. You'd love it. Love it. Oh, and the connections there are insane. Um, one lady just raised a hundred million dollars for her company. Um, and like, so there's like all sorts of people in there. It's really, really cool. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, I love a good recommendation. Yeah. 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 So I'll make the connection afterwards. I'll just, I'll write a little note. So I don't forget um that is a perfect fit um and then if i can sneak in while you're writing yeah, sneak that in down, two more sneak in two the more. other two would be um i loved jack canfield's uh, the success principles and it really talks about taking control of your own success and and being really honest with yourself um i listened to that a bajillion times and then what is it called i'm sorry was it again? Uh, it's by jack canfield and it's the success principles. Okay. Interesting. And then the third one would be the English patient by uh, Michael Andodje. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, or Andanj. Um, just because the prose is beautiful. And if you appreciate good writing, hmm. 
That is the book. It's called what? The English? The, the English Patient. English Patient. Interesting. Is it fiction? Yes. Cool. I don't ever read fiction, so I'm trying to start getting more of a balance. Oh, well, if you want recommendations, call me up because I will. I have a long list of, of favorites and I'm constantly reading a mix of nonfiction and fiction. Cool. Cool. Now, um, if you could name the biggest regret you have in your life, what do you think it would be? Um, you know, somewhere along the line from a very young age, I equated success with, um, with recognition from the outside. And it created a really, really rocky teenage and, um, and college life. I mean, like I, I went through, you know, I, I, I wanted so badly to be recognized for being good enough, being enough that it drove me into, um, suicidal ideation a few different times in some really dark periods because it felt like I would never be enough. And I mean, if I could go back and just somehow, you know, I I don't know that what I could change per se at a young age, but to just, you know, to know that, that I was enough and that, that the outside stuff wasn't going to that wasn't going to fix it because you just strive harder. Like you just raise the bar. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, it's a regret just in terms of having lost out on some years that could have been happier, you know? I mean, in the scheme of things though, it's like, I think it makes me a richer person because I can relate on a very personal level of what that's like, of what that blackness is like when you just don't understand why anybody wants to do this. Um, you know, and then the other regret would just be, like I said, I wish I'd had the guts in the, my last corporate experience to have stood up sooner yeah. and made it, taken a stand. I think that that would have, it, it might not have led me to being a coach though. So again, you know, but it's no, no, like, no. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. You, you know, yeah. it's just like, I, a wish, I wish I sword with the regrets because they do lead to where you are now, of course. Right. But just, but I do like, um, I, I do like the answer of like, you know, just understanding that you're enough. I think that's a really, really, really good one, which leads me to this next question, which is might play into this quite a bit. Um, it's a hypothetical. You get to go back in time to any age uh, and go talk to yourself. But when you're there, you can only say three sentences to yourself and then poof, you're gone. What age would you go back to? And what would those three sentences be? And I'll leave it up to you whether or not you want to tell us why you chose those three sentences. And I'm strict on these rules. It's got to be three sentences. Okay. I got a little loosey goosey and then lost all the awesomeness of the question. So it's <laughs> being strict. Um, okay. 
So I would go back to probably living in Vietnam because things were, I mean, things were good in all intents and purposes, but that age I think was pivotal. Um, 26, 27. Yeah, exactly. And I would, and I would say you're enough. Uh Stop and explore who you are and what you're striving for. Okay. And invest in professional help when you're not feeling like you're enough. It's mm. good. It's good. You know, I think, you know, and the, and the why part is really just, I was, I was striving. I was striving, striving, striving. Right. I mean, I told you that this thing came and um, I had the recommendation had been to don't go straight up in this one area, broaden, you know, because you'll have a stronger base. Mm. And I didn't take that. I couldn't hear that advice. And I never, because I was so driven to just like, Oh, I have to go here. Right. And I, I need to do this. I need to accomplish this thing. But it was like, I mean, in the scheme of things, I'm like, I don't give a shit about costing footwear products. I mean, like no, no offense to the people that do it. Cause it's really freaking hard work, but it's like, my passion wasn't athletic shoes. Right. Um, you know, and had I, been able to have the wherewithal and the consciousness to like say, ah, oh, you know, I should, I should maybe really think about this. And had I known that there were people like coaches <laughs> then, <laughs> and had I done some work then, I, I again, I might not have ended up here. So I mean, I'm really happy where I am. But yeah, I yeah, yeah. I get it. It's cool. Mm. <laughs> Thanks. I like those answers. So um got a couple minutes left. I want to make sure that uh, people know where to find you. It's uh, at Cameron Huban on like everywhere, right? Basically, yes. you can find you LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, not Twitter, uh, Instagram. And then what's this podcast? What's happening? So, okay. They what's can also on? go to my website, which is just www dot cameron huban.com yep um so the podcast i'm super excited about this i will try and be quick no um, no, no please go ahead you, but, I, I left like the rest of the time for the podcast i want people to know thank that. you so so I, I am working on launching i've done I, I probably have seven episodes in the in the can I, i'm working with a producer um but it's called 50 not dead mm-hmm. and it is um it's about ageism And I had come up against this, you know, as a coach, I kept coming up against women that were feeling literally like it's like they, they turn 50 and they're, they become invisible. And I turned 50 this year, I'll be 50 in November. And, and I'm in this fantastic place of, I feel like I have more um, potential for growth, earning potential and impact than I have ever had in my entire career that spanned, you know, different continents and companies and stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And and I see like the next, you know, 15 years as like blowing the doors off. And to see that many other women at, at this age and in this kind of age sector. So it's a kind of like a 45 to like 62, you know, like this time when actually, even if we have children, they're likely not infants. We have all this lived experience. We have so much more creative energy than we potentially had in the past because of the fact that if you've ever parented and worked, I mean, like your your creativity has to go up because you're juggling all the time, right? Yeah. And you're having to define your boundaries, define your priorities, make sure that you know when you're like your circadian cycle, like when are you, when do you work best? Because you better do that shit then because it's the only time you have. And um, it's like, but when you have all of this, this is the time that women should be, women should be in C-suite positions. They should be, you know, VPs, SVPs leading because they have, they, they, lead with empathy. They have, you know, again, this lived experience is often very multifaceted. And I was in a, in another coaching group. Um, uh, uh, this one was uh, with Max Trailer, who I don't know if you know or not know. No, I don't know. It was, a, it was a, a contact I got from Brittany Drozd. Cool. And I was talking one day and I was just like, I think my, like, I was so, I was getting so passionate about it. I'm like, I want these women to know like they they can blow the doors off. Like I want them I want to help raise the conversation about the greatness that you bring to the table at at this age because you have the this perspective, you have experience and I what I'm trying to figure out now honestly is how to elevate the conversation in in C-suite positions in boardrooms, in companies. And, you know, and, you know, luckily I'm not the only one having this conversation, but I certainly want to be a part of it. And I want to help, you know, help the, help women, um, you know, help break down the barriers. I'm trying to decide now, I'd love actually to get your take on it of whether or not to ever interview men on the show. I mean, like the, the mm. intention, it's right? It's like, yeah, yeah. it's 50, not dead. Like men turn 52. And I know that some men also have experienced that same ageism issue. You know what you but should I, do? But I don't know. if. What do you think? Um, I think that you should stick with women for a while. But I, when you do introduce a man, you should get someone that disagrees with you. Well, that's... Yeah. Then, then you should have an argument, like a, a controlled debate on mm-hmm. the podcast. And I think that would be really interesting to watch. That yeah. would be really interesting. I, I had yeah. a conversation with a woman the other day and she. Or even managed, women who disagree with you, but like having like an open conversation. Attention. Yeah. And, and I and wonder the- if they would be open and ready to admit their bias. Um. I had a conversation uh, with a woman the other day and she runs a business that's her portion is 2 billion. The man beside her runs a portion of the bill of the business. That's um, half a billion. Mm-hmm. He's 
more senior than she is. And who <laughs> I want to talk to is their boss. Like, what yeah. the hell? <laughs> like, how can this possibly be? Yeah. Like, how can this possibly be okay? And, mm. and really, like, like I, I mean, I just don't, there, I don't have any fathomable understanding of why that would be. And uh, granted, everybody is different. And I recognize we all have to work for wh- where we get to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, maybe there are things I don't know. I certainly don't know everything about right. the, 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 the two players, but from the outside, for all intents and purposes. It's the outside looking in. Yeah. It mm-hmm. looks like it looks like sexism and ageism. And right. I, I just, you know, those are the kind of people that I would love to have the conversation with. Like, do you, how do you not see this? Yeah. So anyway, if, if anybody is interested in having these conversations with me, please reach out. You can um, find me on LinkedIn as Cameron Huban or Cameron Huban coaching. You can um, email me at, um, at Cameron at Cameron Huban.com. Um, and I'm, oh, I'm interested for you. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm interested to have the conversations. Hmm. Yeah, this is, I think it's really cool uh, to, to be on that. Speaking of which, brings me to another connection I got to introduce you to. Uh, this guy, Lewis, he owns a, a podcast company, promotion company, where he guarantees that you'll be in the top 10 or top 100 pod, uh, podcasts in your uh, specific niche or <laughs> genre or your money back. So it's r- pretty good um, call whenever you want to do that. And what I, he's doing for me is uh he's actually getting me on other podcasts mm, as which allows you to get your story out as a guest and, and talk about it get more people to listen to your show which is the way i personally want to grow so the, and, and it's only pay per podcast you go on so it's a really really nice setup the way that he's uh, set up his business so you're only paying for value literally or you don't pay um, oh that's cool i'd be interested yeah. in that contact mm-hmm. for sure yeah, I don't mean to set up on anyone's toes if you're already working with a production company, but this isn't production. I think it's more of no, no. I mean, I'm promotion. like I said, I'm I'm just moving forward with the interviews, but I'm hmm. the I I want to actually, you know, I'm working with um, somebody to help me produce them. But what I'm what I I really want to get them up and out there because the people right. that I've interviewed to in order to. Um, just honor them and their time and their, their vulnerability in speaking with me. I don't want them to have to wait forever for me to actually get this thing live. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think it has the potential to be, to be really cool and have some really good conversations. So um, yeah. yeah, please sure. you won't step on any toes. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I'll definitely introduce you to him. Um, and this is going to wrap us up right here, guys. Um, Cameron, I'd be more than happy to have you back on um, another time too. We can chat some more, uh, talk more about what's happening right now. Maybe when you have the podcast live and everything, talk about how that's going. Um, and I, I just, I always ask at the end um, to guys, if you're listening, please share this out. This episode may not be for you, but like it might be like for your aunt, your sister, your mother or cousin, maybe your uncle, who knows, but like Cameron, this, I think she gave a lot of, interesting uh insights into her life and, and you know from being someone who couldn't afford a thousand dollar ticket to china to running like coach and and uh <laughs> and the global team so it's really 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 cool um 
And yeah, please share it out. Leave a review so we can get up in the ranks and get more awesome people like Cameron on the show. And uh, lastly, just thank you, Cameron, again for being on the on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun, and um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Until next mm-hmm. time, guys. Peace.